now for something completely different. That's a familiar phrase. We're going to be talking about catchphrases. Why? Because this is Something Rhymes With Purple, a podcast all about words and language, where words come from, where they're going to, why they matter. It's presented by me, Charles Brandreth, and my friend, the scholar, the genius, the walking dictionary, the personification of all that's fabulous in the world of words, Susie Dent. How are you today, Susie? Yeah, well, what an amazing introduction. Thank you. Can I also add the fact that she is the one who's currently sporting a head of elf locks? Because I washed my hair this morning, let it dry naturally. And as you can see, Giles, it is just a mess. And elf locks is an old term for really tangly hair, particularly in the morning, because it's thought to be the work of mischievous elves overnight. That's oh, what I've got. E-L-F locks. Yes, elf locks. Have we ever done why the plural of roof is roofs? And mm. elf is elves. If we haven't, we must explore plurals all over again. We should do plurals because actually it's now roofs rather than roofs. I think you and I at school would have been told roofs, but actually that's not in the dictionary anymore. It's now roofs. And what about hoofs? Yeah, but it's hooves. It's very confusing. We... Yeah, we should do one on plurals. But to be honest, all I will be saying all the way through is, yeah, there's no accounting for human idiosyncrasy because that's pretty much what happens. But we can give it a go. Good. So it's going to be phrases. That's what we're going to talk about today. We were actually talking about advertising slogans the other week, and it got us thinking about the catchphrases that they've spawned, like simples from the comparethemarket.com ads. So we're going to try and dig a little deeper. Susie, have you ever thought about having or been asked to have a catchphrase on Countdown? I've never been asked to. I know... In Richard Whiteley's day, so this was the first brilliant presenter of Countdown, I often used to get told by Richard, oh, you use fantastic a lot, because whenever a contestant would offer a word I was impressed with, I'd go, that's fantastic, which is such a rubbish catchphrase, and nothing ever came of it. Um, No, the person on the show with the catchphrase is Nick Hewer, who ends every single show with, join us tomorrow, same time, same place, you be sure of it, have a very good afternoon, which is excellent. Charming. I remember from the early days of Countdown that the the generator of the letters and the numbers was known as Cecil because the original producer was called Cecil Cora, a tall and amusing man, and it was based on his name, an initialism. Countdown's electronic calculator in In Leeds, Leeds, as it was in those days. Absolutely. But but now it's Manchester, isn't it? Um, Yes, that's him. Do you have a personal catchphrase in your own life? Things that your daughters keep saying, oh, mum, don't keep saying that. No, I mean, we have little silly exchanges. So I can't say half an hour to my youngest. We're saying like, you've got half an hour before bed. And yeah, we'll all say half an hour, half an hour, which is completely ridiculous, but just part of our language. But I don't think I have a catchphrase. Do, Do I need one? Do you have one? Well, I always am saying well done. I know that. Yes, you do I, that I too. say well done because I think it's a good instinct to be positive and to congratulate people. But people yes. say to me, you say it so often, it means nothing. And I'm reminded of the famous story concerning Willie Whitelaw. Willie Whitelaw, for listeners around the world, was a British politician. He was Home Secretary and he was Deputy Prime Minister to Margaret Thatcher many years ago. He's of that generation. And he was moist-eyed. He always seemed to be on the brink of tears and a, a very... Sweet, big, 
man. Uh, and he was visiting a prison. He was going around seeing the, the prisoners and seeing the various work that they were doing, you know, in the in the making baskets in the hobbies shop and making woodwork in the woodwork shop. And, you know, he, wherever he went, he asked them what they were doing. And uh, he was shown into a cell where there was a man sitting very glumly. And he said to the man, what are you doing? And to all these other people, you know, as he'd gone round, he'd congratulate and said, well done, well done, keep, keep it up. And he got to this man in the cell and he said, well, uh, what are you doing? And the man replied, uh, life for murder. Oh, well done, well done, keep up the good work. <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, it, you mustn't get into the habit of saying these things automatically. That's what I learned no, from that story. No, I can see. Catchphrase. Yeah. What is the origin of catchphrase? Well, it is simply something a catch, if you look back a few decades, meant something that attracted popular attention or stimulated public demand. So it didn't mean, oh, that's the catch, that's the kind of hiccup, or that's the flaw, or whatever. It simply meant something that is designed to catch somebody's attention. So it's all the idea of seizing someone's attention. And if you remember, advert actually goes back to the Latin ad towards and vertere to turn. So it's all about getting you to turn towards something. And that's there in catchphrase as well. There's a slight difference between a catchphrase and a slogan, although realistically in practice, I think those have become interchangeable. So a catchphrase is one that's often repeated and becomes connected very much with a particular organisation or particularly a person. A slogan, if you remember, was originally a slug horn. It was a battle cry in Scotland. And that is used either politically or commercially, again, to be associated with a particular group. But it tends to be more, I would say, heavy hitting than a catchphrase. A catchphrase I would nowadays more or less associate with a TV personality. So if I say, nice to see you, to see you nice, you'll know that I am referring to the late, great... Bruce Forsyth. Yes. yes. I know that we've got people listening all over the world who may not be familiar with Bruce Forsyth, but he was a television uh, game show host, but also an all-round entertainer uh, for many years in this country. Um, I, I would say catchphrases is more like a signature phrase, isn't it, of somebody. Also, just a bit of trivia here, catchphrase is one of the few words in English with six consonants in a row. Oh, I love that. Yeah. So watch strap is another one. Watch strap, catchphrase. Knightsbridge, is that one too? Oh, yeah, quite possibly. Very good. Yeah. Oh, my. Oh, I love it. Oh, oh, we haven't played games for a long time. No. We must find an excuse for playing games quite soon. Okay. That sounds good. So give us some of your favourite catchphrases. Well, shall I give you one of the first ever, which you you are too young for, 1907, and it was a music hall sketch called The Bailiff that was voiced by an actor called Fred Kitchen, who died in the 1950s, and it's Meredith, we're in. I've no idea if that's how he said it, but that's one of the first ever that we can sort of say, you know, in the modern era, really, really caught on and became associated with a particular person. How interesting. You can trademark a catchphrase, um, but only for the protection of its use with a particular person or a particular product. So you can't actually enshrine it in the language and say nobody else can ever use this string of words, obviously. It has to be an association. So shall I tell you some that have been trademarked? Please. You cannot be serious. Goodness. You cannot be serious. And who originated that? And how on earth have they managed to trademark it? That's John McEnroe, remember? You cannot be serious at the umpire. Yes. Wow. You could advertise anything with him there throwing down his racket and saying you cannot be serious. 
legendary oh. matches that he had with Jimmy Connors. Gosh, I absolutely adored Wimbledon um, in those days. There's also um, Hakuna Matata, which is, I mean, it's still a very common phrase that you will find in, in Swahili and it's still used. It means no troubles, no worries, you know, take it easy. But that was trademarked by Disney, thanks to The Lion King. Brilliant, brilliant oh. musical, thanks to Elton John and Sir Tim Rice. So those two have been trademarked, but I think it's probably quite rare. Have any catchphrases actually made it into the Oxford English Dictionary? Yes, they have. So one of my favourite examples is, the. are you a Simpsons fan? I'm not sure I could put you down as a Simpsons fan. Oh, do, yes. There you go. Do, exactly. So that is in the Oxford English Dictionary and it's defined as uh, implying that someone has, another person has said or done something foolish um, and it's as expressing frustration at the realisation that things have turned out badly or not as planned. So you think definitely Simpsons, that's slam dunk. But actually... Its origin is a little bit more intriguing than that, because if you look in the OED, you will find the first recorded example goes back to a radio comedy on the BBC during the 1940s. Do you remember a show called Itma? Of course I remember Itma. I remember okay. Itma. Well, I know. I don't. I know about Itma. It's my parents' generation. But yes, that's the Tommy one that Handy. introduced after you, Claude, no, after you, Cecil, into the language. Oh, uh, OK. This was as a radio show from the 1940s. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I think it was first broadcast back in 1939. And yeah. it ran for about 10 years. Uh, Tommy Handley was the big star of it. That's right. That's right. So you can find examples of Doe in scripts from that. So... I think you have to be careful and say, okay, you know, these catchphrases weren't necessarily invented by the people that we now associate them with, but they were definitely popularised. One that I think was pretty much created by John Sullivan, the scriptwriter of Only Fools and Horses, a British comedy, much loved national institution, is Lovely Jubbly. Oh. And that was introduced, I would say they definitely created it as a catchphrase, but it was originally a slogan for an orange drink that I think you can still buy called Jubbly. Oh. And the slogan was Lovely Jubbly. And, of course, it was used by Del Boy in Only Fools and Horses, meaning Lovely Jubbly as he kind of rubs his hands. So, as I say, they don't always create these particular catchphrases, but they are attributed um, with them in the OED. There are disputes, for example, over one of the most famous catchphrases associated with Michael Caine. Not a lot of people know that, or not many people know that. Yeah. And there is a story that goes out there on the internet that this originated actually with Peter Sellers doing an impression of Michael Caine on his answer phone uh, to say that he was away, and not a lot of people know that. Uh, <laughs> and people thought it really was Michael Caine, and that's how it got into the public domain. Michael Caine uh. told me that is not so and that he yeah. did originate the phrase. He did. Uh, and I say this with authority because back in the 1980s, and I can show this to you now, uh, with Michael Caine, I produced a book called Michael Caine, Not Many People Know That. Do you see it there? Yeah. You can see I'm showing it to you. Susie is in Oxford, I'm in London, I'm showing her this on Zoom. Anyway, it was an, an almanac of amazing information. Yeah. And Michael Caine very generously gave his name and lots of nuggets of amusing facts for this book, which was produced in aid of the National Playing Fields Association, a charity of which I was then the chairman. Uh, the Duke of Edinburgh was the president of the charity and the Queen was the patron. And I met Michael Caine to talk about this. And I said, when did you get into this collecting unusual information? Because he's got a mass of it in his head. And he told me he was about three and a half years old 
when he made the first discovery that struck him, when a piano tuner came to sort out the piano at his infant school. And he was completely fascinated by the fact that this piano tuner had a white stick. And he couldn't understand why a blind man had been given this job. Uh, he said he thought he was sort of too timid at that age to ask him outright. So one of the teachers explained that his blindness was in this instance an asset. With one of his senses gone, the others were keener than ever. He had a finer touch and a sharper ear than any sighted person. And Michael came to him, he was amazed. And as he said to me, not many three-and-a-half-year-olds knew that. And he's collected all his life these unusual bits of information. And um, if you catch him in a good mood, uh, you can get him to say, not a lot of people know that. <laughs> Wish I could do that brilliant accent. Well, that's fascinating because, you know, these myths take off on the internet, don't they? That's um, it. Go to primary sources if you possibly can. Of course, always. Apparently, elementary, my dear Watson, is attributed to Sherlock Holmes, but he didn't actually say that. Yes. But that has become his famous character. Well, he does say elementary on a number of occasions, and he yes. does say, my dear Watson, but the two of them being put together mm. is not something that happened at the time. The phrase okay. is used by P.G. Woodhouse in his novel Smith, P-S-M-I-T-H, Journalist, which was published in 1915. As oh. you can confirm, P.G. Woodhouse is one of the big names of the 20th century who created turns yeah. of phrase to feature in the OED, isn't he? Yes, he was the first to give us gruntled, which I love. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, brilliant, brilliant but, writer. But, but I think that Elementary My Dear Watson was a current turn of phrase before P.G. Woodhouse used it in his yeah. novel. But yeah. no, it's not a direct quote from the canon of Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. So. Got you. Well, I, can I do a test or should we do that after the break? It might be time for a break and I'm going to come back and give you a... Oh, good. And, I, and I've got lots to... Hi-yo, Silver! Um, most of the catchphrases I'm familiar with will be from my childhood. That doesn't mean anything to you, does it? Hi-yo, Silver? Does it mean anything Dick, to you? Dick Turpin? The Lone Ranger. Oh, the Lone Ranger. The Lone Ranger. And, okay. And they also, the music they played for that was the sound of Rossini's William Tell overture. And okay. the, the definition of an intellectual in those days was someone who could hear the William Tell overture and not think... Of the Lone Ranger. <laughs> Gosh, that happens to so many of us. Hovis ads, The Apprentice over here, all those, you know, the Prokofiev. It's very, very hard to disassociate, I think, nowadays, some classical music from the programmes they've been used on. But anyway, after the break, I am going to give you a competition or a little contest. Love you madly. <laughs> Where's that from? Exactly. Find out after the break. <laughs> There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The Seven from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The Seven every weekday. So follow The Seven right now. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat. Available now.
Okay, Giles, we're back. I'm going to give you a selection of catchphrases. You have to tell me where they come from. And as always, we have to apologise if these are slightly focused on Britain, because obviously those are the ones that Giles and I have kind of grown up around. But we would absolutely love to hear the catchphrases from wherever you are, because we recognise fully that the purple people are scattered. Um, Love you madly. Love you madly. We love you all madly. Where is that from? Duke Ellington, he used to say, Uh we'd like you to know that the boys in the band all love you madly. It's also the title of one of his songs. No, no, now listen, no, no, listen, listen, titty ye not, listen. Susie, you're going to quiz me, are you? Thank you, Howard. Thank you. (laughs) Right. Um, I don't believe it. That's a very good impression of Richard Wilson in (laughs) One Foot in the Grave. Yes. Playing the husband. Do you remember his name? The husband? No. I know the actor's called Richard Wilson. Victor Meldrew. Victor, of course I remember it. Because yes. when I'm not being mistaken in the street for being Stepto Senior, um, <laughs> the father of the old man, the toothless old man, I'm being mistaken for Victor Meldrew. People sometimes shout to me in the street, I don't believe Seriously? It. Yeah. A lot I, of people I, shouted at I him. I can see that. Yeah. It's a, bit, it's a little bit depressing. No, not at all. Frankly, when you're still in your head, you're the young Dirk Bogart. Mm. To find people think recognising you as Steptoe's dad or Victor Meldrew is it, not a good thing. I was having this very thought to myself yesterday because, as you know, I'm watching The Crown and I'm still very, very near the beginning of it. But I got to the point yesterday where I was watching the episode in which, is it Graham Sutherland does the portrait of Winston Churchill? And Winston Churchill, according to The Crown, I don't know the real story, you will, hates it so much because it shows him in all his decrepitude, in all his... You know, in all his sort of wrinkles and decay. And he absolutely does not see himself like this. He sees himself still very much as a vigorous, powerful prime minister. And he can't face it. And so he burns it. And I was having this conversation with myself just yesterday. It's kind of, you know, that horrible realisation that the way you look in photos is, you know, is, is so far away from how you actually like to see yourself personally speaking. Well, you're absolutely right in that story, the Graham Sutherland portrait, which is an amazing painting, I think, of Churchill. But it was given to him by Parliament, I think, to mark his 80th birthday. Yeah. And he was very distressed by it because he looked so old and broken in it. Uh, And it was his wife, I think, who organised the burning of it. Uh, Because she... But it it, it was devastating that it should be burnt. I think Sutherland's most amazing... Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm happy that you should be watching The Crown. Uh, As you know, I've recently published... There we go. Oh, sorry. I thought you were going to talk about jumpers. No, No. this is important, what's coming up. Well, I was just going to mention that I've recently published a biography of the Duke of Edinburgh called Philip the Final Portrait. And I asked him uh, whether he'd watched The Crown. And he said, uh, um, as a rule, I, I don't watch soap opera. And I think it is a little bit of a... It's beautifully done. But yeah. I gave up on it because I found it... If you if you know the story and yeah. uh, and if you know something of the people, for example, in the case of Prince Philip, he's so multifaceted and complex and mm. interestingly layered. It, it's it's a great show, you know, and so, but it's a bit frustrating when you, when you know the story. Right. Anyway, okay. back anyway, to okay. catchphrases. Back to catchphrases. All right. This you're going to get quite easy, easily, I think. Um, don't panic. 
don't pa- ah yes indeed uh, and i know you like me to um name drop and i can tell you that i was a friend of both the men who created this if it's uh david croft as one of them the creator yeah. of uh, the wonderful dance army yeah. Don't panic. Don't panic, Pike. John Lemisurier. Was he the other creator, John No. The, no. The, the uh, the it was created by uh, Jimmy Perry and mm-hmm. David Croft created okay. it. David Croft has created more successful television than anybody else ever, oh, well, I, I would apologize. say. And Jimmy Perry, okay. he wrote various series with different people. Jimmy Perry was the co-writer. Jimmy Perry came up with the original idea for Dad's Army. And they were both delightful People, I, I, I knew Jimmy Perry. I knew David Croft really well because he was the father, is the father, was the father of uh, Becky Croft, Rebecca Croft, who married my best friend from school, Simon Cadell. So I, I've known the family since I was literally a boy. So that oh, one amazing. I do get right. Okay, uh, one of my favourite series coming up now. I have a cunning plan. Ah, yes, indeed. Spoken by now Sir Tony Robinson. Yeah. In Blackadder. So that's Absolutely. good. Created by the genius that is Richard Curtis. Is that right? Yes, absolutely right. Oh, and did Ben Elton write them as well? Mm. John Lloyd, so. yes. I'll be back. Is is that a catchphrase or are you telling us it's time to have a break? <laughs> no. I'll be back. I'll be I'll back. Be I'm back. not sure of that one. Schwarzenegger. Be... Terminator. Oh, the Terminator. You see, Terminator. yes. Okay, here's another one which only British listeners of a certain age will know, so I'll glide over this one very quickly. I'm free! Ah, also created by David Croft. Uh, Okay, there you go. John Inman. Yeah. And because I'm in the book room, I could get you from my shelves behind me the book I did with John Inman. Okay. I'm free. I'm you being served, Mr Humphreys. Are you being served? Mr Humphreys, now you're being served, also created by David Croft. Just trying to think. I'll give you one more. And then I'm going to give you some. Okay. Uh, I'm going to give you international ones for the older generation because this is an inclusive show. Okay. And we've already mentioned this, so I think you'll get this quite quickly. Rodney, you plonker. What? Say that again. Rodney, you plonker. Oh, Rodney, you plonker. That's the same thing. That's Del Boy. That's the same one that we... Yeah, we did mention that show earlier. Only Fools and Horses. Yes. Exactly. So, okay, I probably won't know any of yours. I'm a bit rubbish at this, but well, I'll just give I'll give you this one. Bueller, peel me a grape. It's a phrase, I suppose, of dismissive unconcern, first uttered by May West, Ah. close to it, that generation, to her maid in the film I'm No Angel. Okay. After a male admirer had stormed out, May West said, "Bueller, peel me a grape." to show how relaxed and casual she was. Wow. Boom, boom. Ugh, basil. Basil brush. Basil brush, exactly. Yes. I really turned against basil brush, I'm afraid to say. I, I kind of just decided that slapstick was not for me and he was too slapstick, so I kind of, yeah, well, erased it, him from my memory, but clearly not completely. Don't worry. We can don't have to agree on everything. It's quite no? fun. Gently, Bentley. Oh, this is my childhood. There was a man called Jimmy Edwards who used to growl this gently, Bentley, to a character called, well, an actor called... Thunderbirds? No, Dick Bentley. You won't know it. Take it from here. It's a radio show. Pass. Mastermind. (laughs) Correct. Absolutely. (laughs) me. That's absolutely... My wife is always saying that when I ask her something. She says, pass. (laughs) Yeah, very good. All right. Um, See if I've got one more. Ooh, Betty. 
Oh, um, some mothers do have them. I haven't thought about that for a long time. Frank yes. Spencer. But this is this. very interesting because that is two lifetimes ago. Yes. And yet I think it does still continue to resonate. Yes, absolutely. But only to people of our age, I guess. But yeah, I used to I used to love those. All, all kind of growing up family shows, I loved them. Should we get to our correspondence and yes, allow please. the purple people to let yeah. us know of the catchphrases they've grown up with? Because it would be fascinating to get an international flavour for those, I think. We need to. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so here's a letter from Gordon Baxter who has come up with a new word, actually. Our local wood has been alive, says Gordon, with birdsong over recent weeks. Just standing for a few moments and listening, you can hear wrens, blue tits, great tits, chaffinches, doves of various kinds, carrion crows and more, plus the occasional drilling sounds of the local great-spotted woodpecker. Beautifully written. All of this is happening simultaneously and is a veritable oral feast, which made me wonder if there is a word to capture this delightful phenomenon. If not, I'd like to propose that we use smorgasbird. Isn't that brilliant? So clever. As you say, a feast, an oral, A-U-R-A-L, an oral feast of birdsong. I can't think of anything better. Smorgasbird is a Scandinavian word, the original word. What is that? Yes, it's Swedish. So it comes from smorgas, probably mispronouncing it, but meaning a slice of bread and butter, and bord meaning table. Very good. So it's basically becomes this kind of amazing variety of open sandwiches and delicacies and all sorts of things, like a buffet, really. But I love that. I think Smorgasbird is excellent. So That's thank Gordon you for that. in Fife. Becky yes. has been in touch, and Becky says, I have been wondering about clod hoppers. We used it when describing someone's shoes that are too big or large in size. Oh, they look like right clodhoppers or walking along with your clodhoppers on. What's the origin of this word? Is it a regional word? My family are from Nottingham and it's a word I've always heard from my grandparents and I use it today. Clodhoppers. And also you're such a clodhopper as if you're walking in an ungainly way. Yes, tell tell me and just- Becky what about Clumsy, which is definitely me. Clumsiness is actually at the forefront of it, because if you look in the OED, it will define a clodhopper, at least its first, earliest definition, as a ploughman or agricultural labourer, but more than that, a country lout. Hence, a clumsy, awkward boar, it says, a clown. Um, So... That if you if you kind of take a more literal definition of clodhopper, it would be one who walks over ploughed land, hence the ploughman, hence the labourer, and hence someone kind of clumsy, because you have to remember that those who were urbane, which is an, an extension of urban, saw those living in the country as, you know, as peasant rustics who were bumpkins and all sorts. So, you know, country dwellers never did have a particularly good reputation, what we've seen as being very unsophisticated. So there's a bit of that there. And then if you've ever walked across a freshly ploughed field, the first thing you notice is that your boots get encrusted with all that kind of dirt in the sort of form of chunks. And so the clod is a you know chunk of earth, as you know. In fact, clot and clod are related, but we use clot for blood and clod for mud, usually. So clodhopper then is somebody who walks over freshly ploughed fields. Then they were used for the heavy boots or the shoes worn to do so by the workers. And then that was extended to any kind of unfashionable or heavy shoe. And by extension, someone who walking in these heavy shoes would be a bit clumsy. So that's that's the journey of Claude Hopper. Brilliant. 
As Noel Coward said, and speaking of good catchphrases, you live and learn, then of course you die and forget it all. And forget it all. But very good, meanwhile. That's yours. I would say that's become your catchphrase. Well, thank you very much. I'm afraid Noel Coward said it first. He said most okay. things first, if Oscar Wilde <laughs> didn't, or Mark Twain. Hello, Susie and Giles. This is a message from Hungary. I've been listening to Something Rhymes with Purple for a year now from Hungary. It really entertains me. It's helped me to improve my language skills, literally from zero. Can't wow. quite believe that. I this saw... is from Ballant Dorman. Great name. Great name. I saw this joke the other day, which made me laugh. The CEO of IKEA has just been elected as Prime Minister of Sweden. Really? What's he doing now? He's assembling his cabinet. <laughs> I have a question about the origin of cabinet. Which one came first, the furniture or the governmental meaning? That's a good question. Excellent. Yeah, we talked about this, I think, in our furniture episode. If anyone wanting to listen in to more on furniture, I think it's called Testiculous Habit. But I can give you a quick recap, if you like. So a cabinet is literally a little room. It's a little cabin, if you like. And that explains both the storage sense, so you store things in a little cabinet, in a little cabin, and also the room, a small room in which government officials would gather. And eventually the phrase or the word was transferred from the room in which they gathered to those who gathered within it. So they are absolutely related. Good. Please do go back to the episode, Testiculous Habit et Bene Pendentes. All is explained in that episode. Play it again, everybody. In fact, play it again, Sam, is another phrase that's yes. almost become a catchphrase. And it's not a misquotation, I think. It is. Do you know what it yeah. comes from? Casablanca. It does. And Humphrey Bogart is supposed to have said, you know, play it again, Sam. But it, he never does. And at one point, Ingrid Bergman in the film says... Play it once, Sam, for old time's sake. And later on, Humphrey Bogart says, You played it for her, you can play it for me. Play it. But yeah. what the hell? The phrase exists. Play it Great again, film. Sam. So if you want to play any of us again, there's a library of more than 100 <laughs> episodes of Something Rhymes with Purple. And in each of them, Susie Dent introduces us to three words that she finds particularly intriguing and she thinks we might enjoy. What have you got for us this week, Susie? Yes. So maybe intrigue and enjoyment with absolutely no practical use whatsoever. I defy anyone to actually use this one in everyday or even once a year usage. This is urtication or urtication. U-R-T-I-C-A-T-I-O-N. It means, wait for it, the act of whipping a numb limb with nettles in order to restore its feeling. <laughs> Say it again. <laughs> and it's in the dictionary. Urtication. Urtication. And that comes from stinging. So it's the idea of stinging. So by stinging, you kind of restore and revive skin. So it's the same word, same root that gives us urticaria. Exactly. Exactly that. Urtication. Yeah. Thank you. And just to throw in, formication is also in the dictionary. Not fornication, but formication. Something to do with feeling flies? To do with ants, actually. Ants, of course. For it's me. the feeling of having insects crawling all over your skin. That's formication. Ooh. Ooh. Mm. Ooh. Anyway, so that's that's urtication. Then this one, I think, for me, describes someone who is always the victim. You know, the world is always out to get them and they are always looking for something new to complain about. So I've mentioned before the word smell fungus is somebody who's a habitual fault finder. But this one is also, I think, someone who just contrives to give themselves vexations, if you like. They are a seek sorrow. Oh, a somebody sorrow. almost looking for trouble. 
Almost looking for things that they can then complain about and blame the world for, yes. Oh, we know a few of those, don't we? We do. Seek sorrow. And finally, this one sounds a bit macabre, but it was used in the Royal Navy by sailors during the days when they had their daily rations of rum. And it was used when more water than necessary was added to the rum in order to dilute the rations and eke them out. But nowadays you can use it if somebody serves you a cup of weak tea... And I know, Jazz, you like really strong tea with a tea bag left in. You are drowning the miller. Ooh. So to drown the miller is to use more water than necessary. And I think the idea is that a miller works with a water wheel. So if you add even more water, then he's going to go under. But it takes a lot of water to do that. I think that's the idea. So as I say, slightly macabre. Apologies for that. But quite useful if you like strong tea and are constantly given the opposite. <sighs> You never cease to amaze me, Susie Dent. You are quite brilliant. I've got a very short poem for everybody this week. It's just a three-line poem. It's by Jane McCulloch, whose short terse verses often about possibly her troubled love life. I don't quite know. Anyway, she writes a lot about love, and um, she's remarkable. She's got a new novel coming out soon. I'll tell you about that in a week or two. Anyway, A Thought by Jane McCulloch. As one decade tips into the next, you are surer of life and less sure of sex. (laughs) Well, I'm going to say completely stum on that one. But I would say, please, please, please do write in with your own poem, if you like, or obviously with words and questions that have tickled your fancy. And we will do it. Well, we'll definitely read them all and we'll do our best to feature them because they are really important to every single episode. Um, You can email purple at something without the G else.com. Something Rhymes with Purple is a Something Else production. Produced by Harriet Wells, with additional production from Lawrence Bassett, Steve Ackerman, Ellen McLeod, Jay Beale, and no Seek Sorrow, he... Golly. I wonder if he's into education. Do you think so? Do you think flagellating himself with old nettles? Yeah, golly. He's a rum one. He's deeper than you know. He's deeper. Deeper than you think. Not a lot of people know that. (laughs) 